Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, and you're listening to The Economist Weekly Podcast on technology and science called Babbage. I'm the host, Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on this week's show, we're going to explore the tightening bonds between man and machine. Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink, aims to interlace computers with the brain's synapses. Neuralink is not the only company to be doing this, and there are groups of researchers all over the world working on this stuff. We're not going to be plugging our brains into computers anytime soon, but it's happening. Also on the show, we'll hear how a man paralyzed from the shoulders down has been able to feed himself with a chip implanted into his brain and a computer link. This might actually be a bellwether that Neuralink is onto something. He was able, after a year, to drink coffee through a straw from a cup, uh, able to reach and grasp that. And then at the end of last year, he was able to actually feed himself mashed potatoes from a plate. Also on the program, a new glove that gives the user the ability to detect poison by touch alone. Instead of having to go and take samples with you know, a piece of cloth or whatever that you're going to feed into your device, you just touch it and then it electrochemically realizes or sends a signal that says, oh, right, these chemicals are present. But first, Elon Musk. Now you might think that he has his hands full being the CEO of SpaceX, which wants to bring humans to Mars, and being the CEO of Tesla Motors, which wants to bring humans into electronic vehicles around the corner. And he's also the CEO of Hyperloop Technologies that wants to actually pack people into vacuum tubes and shimmy them from city to city, and also the CEO of a solar panel operation. But Mr. Musk is adding yet another company to his roster, Neuralink. It is a research firm whose goal seems to be to work towards an ever closer union between the human mind and the computer. I'm joined now by Hal Hudson, our technology correspondent, to tell us more. Hello, Hal. How are you doing, Ken? I'm great, except this sounds purely science fiction. Are we really ready to do something as crazy as this yet? I think we're ready because it is happening. Neuralink is not the only company to be doing this, and there are groups of researchers all over the world working on this stuff. It's very rudimentary. We're not going to be plugging our brains into computers anytime soon, but it's happening. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about where it's happening and how it's happening. So I've been tracking this tech for a little while. One group is in Florida International University in Miami, and their way of doing it is using a special kind of nanoparticle which feels both magnetic and electric force, and they inject billions of these into rats' tails and drag them up through the rat's body using a magnet into its brain, and then they... I know it's grim, right? That's incredible. No one has seen my, my face wince and my eyebrows furrow, but Hal has. Yeah. The amazing thing about this is that it's one of the least invasive ways to put, <laughs> to, to merge computing and brains. And once those nanoparticles are in the rat's brain, they then use modulated magnetic fields to try and send information to and receive information from the rat's brains. That's the hard bit. And is that working? Not really. 
Okay. So what might Neuralink use to do it a little bit more innovatively? We have very little idea about that yet. It's all quite secretive at this point. They have hired a bunch of people from around the country. They hired one guy from Boston who has worked on putting chips in birds' brains to see how they sing. Yep, of course. But the actual technological route, we don't know. I think that's going to be part of the the research. Okay. And what would be the applications of this other than to create sort of cyborgs? Well, the initial applications, the on-ramp, if you like, are medical. So if you have brain damage from a stroke or if you have a degenerative disease like Alzheimer's, you might have problems like a lack of long-term memory or a problem forming long-term memories. And there are ideas out there for creating essentially memory prosthetics that would plug into your hippocampus and allow you to read and write memories from the brain. This is pretty wacky application-wise, but that's sort of the furthest out medical tech that people have thought of. More near term, you might just have better devices for treating things like Parkinson's. We already have these deep brain stimulation electrodes, which are kind of like a piece of cooked spaghetti that you slide into a person's brain to stimulate the, the right spot in order to control the symptoms of Parkinson's. So I would imagine that these companies might target that kind of medical device. Now, Elon Musk is a very value-driven investor. Electric vehicles is one example of that. And so here it looks like he is just trying to vaunt humanity against the AI machines. Tell me more. It's an interesting question. What is Elon doing with this? My personal view, and I don't think there's much, there's not much information out there to have anything other than a personal view, but my personal view is that this is really good PR. He has this assortment of companies that do all these very interesting things. There's the tunneling company, which its sole mission is to dig tunnels under Los Angeles to solve traffic. We humans hate traffic. We humans hate typing on computers. I I think he's trying to tap into all these feel-good, cyborgian, hyper-cool tech projects in order to perhaps prop up the more real work of Tesla and SpaceX, you know, which is inevitably hard, real work that perhaps needs more money, more public support. I think all of our listeners are looking at what Elon Musk is doing and thinking about their own lives and the future of technology and wondering that ultimate question, I cannot even keep up with my email How can a single individual be the CEO of many, many companies? So my question to you, Hal, is, is Elon Musk actually a human being or is he a machine? I think that's a really interesting question. And I would answer it by saying that he is a cyborg, but not a technological one. I think the reason Elon is so good is because he's able to hire lots of brilliant people to solve really difficult problems. Of course, if Elon was running the show at all of these companies we've mentioned, he'd have no hope. He'd have got nowhere. But I think he must have some special ability both to articulate a vision to people and then to drive them on and motivate them to do the work to get some of the way there. So, yeah, he's a cyborg of many people, if you will. That's really interesting. Hal, thank you very much. Sure. To our listeners, what do you think about fusing man and machine even further still? Are there any researchers who work in the field that Neuralink is settling into? We want to hear from you. So please don't forget, all of you can email us at radio at economist.com. Next, a new setup that analyzes signals from the brain has enabled a paralyzed man to control his arm. 
Here to tell us more is our science correspondent, Anano Bhattacharya. Hello, Anano. Hi again. First, what is the situation with the patient? The patient was in an accident about 10 years ago and essentially ran into the back of a mail van. And as a result of that, he's been paralyzed from the shoulders down. And so the new technique is allowing him to use his arms. How does that work? So the researchers involved with the new work, they identified the part of the man's brain which was responsible for generating impulses that move his arm. They did this using a brain scan. They asked him to think about moving his arm. And then once they'd found the the little bit of the brain that was responsible, they implanted two chips. And these chips contained a couple of hundred microelectrodes that were able to measure the electrical activity of that part of the brain. After the operation, the man was asked to think about moving a virtual arm on a computer screen, and the results of that were fed into a computer algorithm. That output was then used to drive a virtual arm, and so the man was able to control the virtual arm with his own brain, and eventually electrodes were connected into his arm, and then whenever he thought about moving his arm, he was able to move it via the computer algorithm. And now he's able to use his real arm. That's right. He was able, after a year, to drink coffee through a straw from a cup, uh, able to reach and grasp that. And then at the end of last year, he was able to actually feed himself mashed potatoes from a plate. That's extraordinary. Has anything like this been done before? It's never been done with a patient as severely paralyzed as this one. Last year, there was a nature study uh, where they'd used a similar setup with a man who could still move his elbow and they'd restored some degree of hand and arm movement. So he was also able to, to drink from a cup. How does it actually work in terms of taking the neural signals that the fellow wants to use his arm to alert the muscles to actually do it in exactly the right way? That sounds very complicated. The pattern of activity is recorded by the computer algorithm. The computer is also aware of the motion required. And to measure the motion of the arm, there's a bunch of goniometers, which are instruments to measure the angle of the man's arm. That's fed back to the computer. So when it sees the pattern of activity and it knows the required motion and it knows the angle that the arm should be at, it can then generate the signals to the muscles that enable that movement to take place. So if you will, there's sort of a middleware, which is the computer, computer in the loop. That's right. That's uh, really important. Now, how does the chip register the signals? Is it at a synapse level? Do you actually sort of, at some point, tie in nerve endings in the brain to the actual silicon? What's going on there? Each microelectrode actually plugs into an individual neuron. So what you're seeing is the firing of individual neurons there. And the, the two so there's chips... A lot, there's a lot of neurons. There's the two chips. The, the electrodes are so small that they actually are targeting altogether about 100 individual neurons. And that's all you need to control the arm movement. So when do you think that this sort of technique that's in the laboratory today will go into medical practice tomorrow? So there's some important hurdles to cross uh, first. The setup that was used in this experiment used cables to connect the man's brain through the computer to his arm. Uh, The good news there is that an entirely wireless setup 
was demonstrated last year in non-human primates. So it's there. Uh, the researchers estimate that, that that should be available in a couple of years. The other problem is that the electrodes in the man's brain, which were implanted there uh, via the chips, they don't last forever. They last maybe five years. And so you'd want more robust chips. And there's a few groups working on that. So, you know, we're, we're talking a few years yet, but by no means decades. Really interesting. Thank you, Anana. A pleasure as always, Kim. In last week's episode, we discussed how scientific publishing could be altered to allow data to be released earlier into the public domain and a slew of other reforms, including of peer review. One commenter on our website, Adichio, wrote, quote, I wonder if laypersons to science can read scientific journals and medical journals and be informed by them. Do these journals also write articles in a manner so that people generally not associated with their subjects may also be interested readers? End of quote. So it turns out that Aditya is completely right. The modern method of scientific and medical journals to speak only to that insular community with a language that only they understand is relatively recent. At the turn of the 1900s, before we had the mathematization of the sciences, most of the journal articles were written deliberately in a way that anyone with a reasonable education could understand it and suss it out. But starting in the early 1900s, that started to change, and now it's completely gobbledygook to the rest of us. And clearly there is room for general interest publications to popularize the research. In fact, that is what we try to do at Babbage. Don't forget, all of you can get in touch about our journalism by tweeting us at Economist Radio or by writing on our Facebook page. Finally, detecting noxious substances is a dangerous game. And although many are banned under international law, not everyone sticks to the rules. The assassination of Kim Jong-nan, the brother of North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un, was one recent example. According to Malaysian police, the nerve agent VX was used, a lethal liquid even in tiny doses. So a handy means of detecting chemical weapons would be welcome. Joining us on the line to tell us more is our science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. Hello, Matt. Hey, Ken. Matt, what sort of technology is used at the moment to detect chemical weapons in the field? If you're special forces moving through a potential chemical site, if you want to monitor the surfaces and detect whether or not those kinds of nasties have been there, you've got to take a, a surface sample and then you've got to feed it into a clunky device that you're carrying around with you. These things are portable. But they're not ideal. You have to put the sample into the device, and then the device has to go ping and tell you, yep, Seren or VX are present. If you're, if you're working in a dangerous or a hostile location, then you got to work quickly, and this takes up valuable minutes. So the notion is, could we do it faster? Okay, so how does the technology work? The old clunky boxes would have a gel inside them that had a specific enzyme that reacted with the organophosphates that are found in things like sarin and VX. Its conductive properties change when the enzyme interacts with one of these organophosphate compounds. So if something like sarin or VX is present, you get a signal on the device and tells you, okay, right, you've got these chemicals around. The notion was, could you migrate that to, say, the finger of a glove? And that's exactly what these guys are doing. They've got two electrodes that come down the finger of the glove and just about meet add a little bit of gel that contains that enzyme. And instead of having to go and take samples with you know, a piece of cloth or whatever that you're going to feed into your device, you just touch it 
And then it electrochemically realizes or sends a signal that says, oh, right, these chemicals are present. So is it a costly innovation? We don't know costs yet. The details of the thing, you sample anything that's out there with your thumb, which has a carbon circle on it, that's pretty good at picking up compounds associated with sarin and VX. Then if you want to sample whether or not any sarin or VX or related stuff is around, you press your thumb against your index finger where those two electrodes almost meet at the gel sample. Then, because the glove itself that you would be wearing doesn't have any electricity in it, you would wear a ring over the glove that meets where the two electrodes run up to the top of the index finger. That ring has a battery in it that's sending electricity through the electrodes That ring also has the potential to transmit a signal to your mobile phone, and then your mobile phone has an app on it that sounds an alarm if the current changes when you push your thumb against your index finger. Now, after terrorism, counterterrorism, I should say, what other applications could this be used for? Well, the idea of changing the current in a a semi-solid gel is pretty widely applicable. I mean, if you could get something into one of these gels that reacted with, let's say, dynamite or other compounds that are associated with explosives, then you could potentially create a glove that you swipe the surface in an area with your thumb, you push it against your index finger, and if the current changes, then you know that something has altered the current in the gel. So you could conceivably see, like, a team of 10 special forces troops outfitted each with a different glove that's got a different semi-solid gel with enzymes in it that react to different dangers. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot. Of course. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. If you did, please take a moment to rate it through your podcast app or on iTunes. And if you like The Economist content, consider subscribing to the newspaper in print or in digital. If you have any thoughts on this week's show, email us at radio at economist.com. In London... This is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.